the G7 takes sharp aim at both Russia and China at their latest summit, how is India navigating the diplomatic tightrope between the two worlds? Hello and welcome to Worldview at the Hindu with me, Sohasini Heather. This is episode 68 and we're going to take you through the outcomes of the summit of G7 leaders. Remember, this is what is called the group of the world's most industrialized economies. It was held in Germany this week, an annual summit where along with India and Indonesia and a few other countries, of course, India attended as a special invitee. Last week, we told you about the BRICS summit of emerging economies. That was once seen, in fact, even as a complementary group and now much more as a potentially competitive group or certainly an antagonistic group to the G7. What both groups have in common is originally they both set out with the agenda driven by the economy, geoeconomics over geopolitics. Very quickly, let's tell you a bit about the G7 itself. The grouping began as the group of six, actually, in 1975 with a meeting of leaders of US, UK, West Germany in those days, Italy, France, and Japan. They really came together in the early 1970s as a result of the oil crisis and then the global currency exchange issues, as well as a kind of collapse of the Bretton Woods system, and decided that they must meet annually to discuss economic issues. Canada then joined in 1976, making this now the G7. And in fact, the EU leadership, the European Union's and the European Union Commission and Council's leadership has always been invited to the G7 meet since then. In the 1990s, after the fall of the Soviet Union and then the reunification of Germany, Russia was added to make it the G8 and then of course West Germany was replaced by Germany. However, decades later, after the Russian wars with Georgia in 2008 and then the annexation of Crimea in 2014, the club decided to oust Russia permanently and in fact has been very united against its former co-member, Russia, particularly when it comes to sanctions over the war in Ukraine this year. Now, India has been a special invitee to the G7 on several occasions in the past, dating back to, I think, 2003, and then including five consecutive years from 2005 to 2009, when Dr. Manmohan Singh was invited during the global economic crisis. This year, Prime Minister Modi attended for the third time. He spoke about climate change, energy transitions, and food security in particular. Now, as the G7 comes together every year, the criticisms have been growing, and you may have seen many protesters at various G7 venues around the world. Now, what are those criticisms? The first, that it is essentially a first world elite club. It hasn't grown, it hasn't revised its membership, and given that not all of its members are even amongst the world's top economies anymore, most pointed Italy, for example, it remains to be seen why the G7 hasn't reviewed this membership. The second, really, that the G7 countries represent more than 50% of global GDP, but just 10% of the world's population. And that just illustrates how much power is concentrated in the hands of just a few and that great global inequality that is spoken of. The third, that by cutting out Russia and China and really pointing themselves at Russia and China, the G7 are ensuring a greater polarization of the world into these two blocks even as we see ties between Russia and China get stronger and stronger. The fourth big criticism is the fact that the G7 countries are also military partners. Remember, aside from Japan, all of them are members of NATO, and of course, US and Japan have a military partnership. This means that the economic agenda of the grouping that it has often spoken about actually takes a backseat. 
in the current scenario, for example, the Russia-Ukraine war and the tussle with China are much more important than just purely an economic agenda. And as a result, many of the outcomes of the G7 that was held at Germany's Alpine Resort, it's called the Schloss Moor Resort, where US President Biden, Canadian President Trudeau, French President Macron, Italian Prime Minister Draghi, UK Prime Minister Johnson, Japanese Prime Minister Kishida met over two days. They had a very pointed messaging for both Russian, Russia and China and President Putin and President Xi. So let's just take a look at quickly what are the outcomes of this G summit. One was a separate statement of a commitment on Ukraine. The G7 countries actually underlined very strong language there, their condemnation for what they called Russia's illegal and unjustifiable war of aggression against Ukraine. They said they will support Ukraine for as long as it takes with financial, humanitarian, military and diplomatic support. Their combined monetary support this year for the G7 countries totals uh, nearly 3 billion in humanitarian aid and nearly 30 billion in budgetary aid. Apart from this statement, there was a separate annex on sanctions against Russia, which the G7 have met in the, in the past few months about as well. They said they had a commitment to impose costs on Russia. And what are those costs that they look at? One is a coordination on sanctions, of course, financial sanctions, especially on oil, where they are trying to squeeze Russia's exports, really, which is a great revenue earner, especially the prohibition of transport of oil through sea routes. Uh, the second area is the contracting of Russia's central bank's foreign reserves by really making it very difficult for Russia to trade in the rubles with their countries. The third, reducing Russia's military's access to funds and to military components. And fourth, pursuing Russian oligarchs. Now, these are all actions we have been speaking about here on Worldview in the past few months. Apart from these, there was a statement on global food security, for example, where G7 parties said they are on target to raise $100 billion, lift $500 million from malnutrition by 2030. This was a commitment they gave in 2015. And here, too, they had a reference to Russia, saying they are stopping Ukrainian wheat and other grains from being exported. And the G7 said they will separately allocate $4.5 billion to help Ukraine produce and export its grain. The fourth big statement coming out of the G7 was a Partnership for Global Infrastructure and Investment, PGII, with a plan to mobilize $600 billion over the next five years to what they call narrow the global investment gap. This was a clear message to China, the Belt and Road Initiatives, and the concerns over unsustainable debt creations in BRI countries. The fifth was statements on climate change and on just transition partnerships between the G7 and countries like India, Indonesia, Senegal, South Africa, and Vietnam to ensure that all these countries are able to keep up, keep their targets for keeping global warming levels between 1.5 degrees and 2 degrees Celsius only. Finally, and this was much talked about in India, a statement on resilient democracies, which India also signed on to, where, it, uh, where Prime Minister Modi committed to ensuring free and fair elections, the protection of civil society, promoting human rights online and offline, and achieving gender equality. Now, the purpose of this statement was to distinguish the G7 and its special invitees as democracies apart from authoritarian countries like Russia and China. Obviously, once again, that message being reinforced. In fact, straight from the G7 summit, the leaders of the G7 actually went to Madrid for a NATO summit. And remember, with the exception of Japan, all G7 members are also NATO members, as I said. 
And then they also invited with Japan, South Korea, Australia, and New Zealand, all of whom have military alliances in the Indo-Pacific with the United States. And all of them were invited to the NATO summit in Madrid to make much stronger statements about the twin challenges from Russia and China. So if one group is concerned about Russia, the other group is concerned about China, and all of them are, con are concerned about both those countries. So let's just boil down what all of this means for India and what are the messages really to watch out for globally, because what we are seeing looks like a turning point. And the first message really is that India's tightrope walk between the West on one side, and I include Japan there, and Russia, China on the other, has just become much more difficult. The G7 statement indicates a real point of no return between the two blocs, even if the much needed Russian uh, Ukraine ceasefire takes place. Uh, in other words, if the war actually stops, you will still see a huge break between the two sides. Second, what we will expect to see is more scrutiny of India's economic links with Russia. There have been concerns, but they might be much more vocal now, including India's import of Russian oil, now hitting about 25% of India's imports. Many say since the war, India has increased its oil intake 50 times. It's also bought more coal and cement from Russia at cheaper prices, as well as payment mechanisms that India is building or exploring to subvert these Western sanctions. The third message is that the US-China rivalry is likely to step up in the Indo-Pacific with the new economic initiatives plan. Remember, one of the big criticisms of the US has been that it doesn't put its money where its mouth is when it comes to the Indo-Pacific. So now what we have seen is instead of some of the previous statements made which didn't lead anywhere like the Build Back Better World Initiative or the Blue Dot Network Initiative, we have seen the U.S. talk and we spoke about this in uh, Tokyo. The U.S. spoke about the Indo-Pacific Economic Forum. Let's see where that goes. And now there is something more concrete called the PGII, which is that Partnership for Infrastructure and Investment to the tune of $600 billion, aimed really at countering China's Belt and Road Initiative. Let's just see how long that takes. The second important part of this is that significantly India joined the IPEF. But actually, when asked in Germany, Foreign Secretary Vinay Quatra made a point of saying India has not signed on to this new initiative, the PGII plan, just yet. So that's a space to be watched closely. And the fourth message is that Prime Minister Modi's commitment at the G7 Resilient Democracy Statement will really keep the Modi government accountable and all these, what we're going to see in the next few months, upcoming religious freedom summits in the UK, democracy summits in the US at the end of the year. Also ahead this year, remember, after September, it will be India's turn to undergo a universal periodic review, UPR, at the Human Rights Council. And recent arrests of activists and journalists, as well as the growing communal violence in the country, is bound to come under the scanner. And this G7 statement will be used sort of as an example for India. The fifth message that India's partnerships with countries like Indonesia, Brazil, South Africa, the ASEAN countries, Southeast Asian countries, that are still seeking to balance their ties between the two blocs is going to get stronger. Just as we saw Indonesian President Jokowi, who is actually hosting the G20 summit this year, he went to the G7 summit and then traveled to both Kiev and Moscow and has invited both President Zelensky and President Putin to the summit in November in Indonesia, we expect to see India as host of the next year's G22, seeking opportunities to mediate between them and to continue to walk this balance. Already, 
India's role as the balancing power in the room seems to be quite evident. At the BRICS summit last week, for example, India ensured that anti-Western language uh, that we had heard from Mr. Putin as well as from Xi Jinping, that didn't enter any of the text documents. While at the G7 outreach, India seemed to ensure that statements that condemned Russia and China were not part of the documents that India signed. The only question really is, how long can India stay on its tightrope before one or the other bloc says it must pick a side? Certainly something worth watching. We do have re reading recommendations for you as well. The first, a little more academic book. I always get you one of these from, uh, from one of the academic presses. It's called The G7 Anti-Globalism and the Governance of Globalization. This is a book of essays edited by Kiara Uldani and Jan Wouters. Another book on the academic lines is called International Summitry and Global Governance, The Rise of the G7 and the European Council from 1974 to 1991. So if you're interested in the history of the G7 and how it was founded, of course, so much has changed since then. This is another edited work by two editors, which is worth looking at. The third is a book really about the crises that are coming for the G7 countries, the storm before the calm, America's discord, the coming crisis of the 2020s, and the triumph. This is by George Friedman. George Friedman is an analyst who writes often about these kind of futuristic crises and what to watch out for. There's another book with a more pessimistic line, if you like, called The End of the World is Just the Beginning. Author Peter Zaihan mapping out a future of how reversing globalization, securing food, energy, and their borders themselves is going to become very important for countries. Another book that you might find interesting is The Tragedy of Great Power Politics by John Mearsheimer. Of course, Mearsheimer's statements about Russia, NATO, the expansion and all the rest have been watched quite a lot in India. So this book might be interesting. Then there is The New World Disorder and the Indian Imperative, What India Really Should Do. This is by Shashi Tharoor and Samir Saran and uh, very much from an Indian perspective worth looking at. Of course, uh, there is the book by Henry Kissinger, World Order and so many other books by him that deal with various parts of the global order tussle, but world order certainly worth reading. Uh, and then a book I thought you might find interesting. It's about the relationship between Barack Obama and Angela Merkel, Merkel and it's called Dear Barack, book by Claudia Clark, talking about how these two leaders of the US and Germany came closer together over and bonded really over solutions for the economic crisis we saw in the late 2000s. So a lot of books for you to read and a lot to think about for all of us. We do hope you join us here again on Worldview from the team. Thanks for watching.